all about Jesus. It's all about the Lord. All about the Savior and the promise of His Word. It's all about Jesus. Welcome to It's All About Jesus, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel Eagle. You are listening to a Sunday morning message by Pastor Mike Sasso. If you would like to join us for church, we meet every Sunday, 10 a.m. at North Star Charter School, 839 North Linder Road in Eagle, Idaho. You may also join us live streaming at that time. Go to cceagle.org at 10 a.m. to watch the whole service live. If you can't join us then, you can always go back and watch the video. Let's listen in to today's message. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the Lord. So here's the thing. Be careful as you study the scriptures that you understand what it's saying and what it's not saying. Let me start over with that verse now with that in mind. It's talking about the sin of going back to the sacrificial system. <clears throat> if we sin willfully, not just any sin, after we have received the knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ rather than animal sacrifices, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, meaning all the sacrificing of the animals you're doing right now, it's useless, it's worthless. That's the context of this. You see it? Okay. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fire indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who's rejected uh, Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And you really like Moses' law, don't you? How much worse punishment do you suppose one will be brought worthy or thought worthy who has done three things? I numbered them for you up there. Number one, trampled the Son of God underfoot. That means Jesus died for your sins and you're going to go back to animal sacrifice? You're going to walk all over Jesus and his sacrifice for you? Number one. Number two, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Boy, there's two things that jump out at me on this part. It's saying number one is Jesus' blood was shed for you. And now you're figuring you've got to shed animal blood instead of Jesus' blood. You're considering the, the precious blood of Jesus as a common thing. It's just the blood of any man. Common thing. It's just not a holy, precious sacrifice. It's a common thing. But the second thing that stands out to me in that verse is it's, you counted the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified a common thing. That means Jesus' blood can sanctify you and you can get to the place from a heart and heart that you no longer consider it special. It's a common thing. What a danger, huh? Be open. Some of you guys right now, your walls are going up. Because some of you guys are going, oh no, that can't happen. Okay, then the Bible is talking about something that can't happen. Okay, let me keep reading. The third step. Number one is you trampled the Son of God underfoot. Number two is you count the blood of Jesus uh, as just like the blood of any other man. Number three, you've insulted the Spirit of grace. Now, you know what this, to me, is a picture of? What the Bible calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You've insulted the Spirit of grace by trampling underfoot the Son of God, considering the blood that he shed for you is just like the blood of any other man. You reject the gospel, and you're insulting the Holy Spirit who is telling you Jesus is the way. 
Maybe we'll make this a four-part series. Because I tell you, there's so much to see here, and I'm exhorting you to be open to what the Bible says, because there's been a lot of theological training put into our head that this doesn't mean that, and this can't mean this, and this doesn't mean... The Bible says what it means. It means what it says. And I'm gonna, I want to find that promises, warnings, threats, blessings, it's all true, and I'm not going to throw any of it away. I want to see how it all fits together properly. So, there no longer remains a sacrifice for somebody who has done those three things, who's trampled underfoot Jesus Christ, who's considered the blood of Jesus as nothing or just like any other man, and you insult the spirit of grace. There's no, there's no sacrifice for you anymore. So, if that's where you're at, then that's describing you. But you know what? Most Christians who are afraid of committing the unforgivable sin or think Hebrews 6 is talking about them, they're nowhere near this. Most Christians who are worried about, did I commit the unforgivable sin? You, you love Jesus. You want Jesus to forgive you. You want to make sure that you're not, you haven't gone too far. That's, you know what? If you're worried about it, that's a great sign that you're not, there's nothing to worry about. Huh? If you're worried about it, that's a good sign that you care about the things of God. And you care about being right with God. So I used to hear this all the time and it didn't help me when I was worried about it. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, being worried about this Hebrews 6 is evidence that you care and you're, you're, you're a child of God. Because let me tell you something. If you're not worried about it, then maybe it is about you, you know? I, 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 someone comes to mind right now. There's several people I know who used to be in ministry and used to preach the gospel and teach the Bible. They were leadership. And now they're actively atheists trying to get people to reject Christ and become an atheist like them. And if I showed them this verse, they'd go, that's not true. They're not worried about it. They should be worried about it. The ones who are worried about it shouldn't be worried about it. All right, I'm spending way too much time on that one. Okay, listen. Many commentaries begin a study, and I've read a lot of commentaries and listened to a lot of my favorite Bible teachers the last couple of weeks getting ready for this study. And many commentaries actually begin Hebrews 6 by saying, this is a very difficult text to interpret. Can I tell you it's not? It's not a difficult text to interpret. It's only a difficult text to interpret if it goes against your theology. Yeah. Well, my theology says this. So that, that's really tough because that's not the way I believe. Here's what's difficult for you in the Bible. When the Bible says something that you don't believe, you go, well, that's difficult. No, maybe you need to change your belief. Okay? Maybe you need to let the Bible adjust your theology rather than try, always try to get the Bible to fit into your theology. So the fact is that it's not a difficult text. It's only difficult to those whose theology is threatened by it or destroyed by it. And a proper understanding of the warnings and promises of God will, you know, you have to find the balance, then you won't have any difficulty. I, don't, I no longer believe that Hebrews 6 is a difficult passage. It's very simple. It's true. We've got to understand it's a warning letting you know the hopelessness of the apostate, not the hopelessness of the believer. It's not threatening the believer. Now, just to be fair, let me give you, there's five different ways theologians interpret Hebrews 6. And you're going to find these if you look in your notes, your study notes of your study Bible, or if you go online and everyone's got their favorite way to interpret it, depending on how it's sometimes, depending on how they want to interpret it. 
Because it can't mean what it sounds like it's saying, so we've got to find another reason, another meaning for it, right? So let me just give you some examples. Um, some claim that these warnings are hypothetical. It's suggesting that all the harsh warnings here is just to shock the hearers uh, in, in, out of spiritual lethargy. So there's no, there's no real threat here. It's just to shock you so that you keep walking with the Lord. Like, be careful, don't fall off the cliff. But there's such a wall of invisible plexiglass around that cliff that nobody could ever fall off the wall. And so uh, I'm just saying that just to keep you driving right. I think that's the stupidest explanation <laughs> Why in the world, or where else would God give a hypothetical situation that, be careful, because if you do this, that will happen, but he didn't really mean it. He's just saying it just to scare you. Now, okay, now there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who believe the hypothetical argument, that that's what this is about. Don't fall off the cliff when you can't fall off the cliff, okay? Now, let me give you one of the reasons. Well, I already gave you one reason why I think it's stupid. It's because God doesn't warn you about something that there's no reason to warn you about it, right? If there's no reason to be concerned, he wouldn't say be concerned, okay? Anyway, but the number two thing that really, to me, it clinches it. In verse 6, jump to verse 6, it says, if they fall away, okay? Now, the, the, those who believe the hypothetical view say it's an if. It doesn't, it's not going to happen. It just says if they fall away. It would be impossible to come back if the, it's possible for them to fall away. And since it's impossible to fall away, they, it, it can't happen. And blah, blah, blah. Dig the hole deeper. Let me tell you why this doesn't work at all. In Hebrews 6, the word if is not in the original text. Matter of fact, some of your Bibles even translate it right because it actually says, having fallen away. Or, in the case of those who've once been enlightened, and tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, I know the whole thing, and they've done all this stuff, and they've fallen away. Some of your Bibles actually interpret it that way, the proper way, and don't put the word if. The King James, the New King James, say if, and it gives room for the hypothetical explanation. It's not hypothetical. God is giving a, a serious warning that is a real warning that there's a real danger of falling away, okay? <clears throat> now, there's a second view that holds that those uh, who the author is concerned about are Jews who really, they never became Christians yet. They're just Jews. It's unsaved Jews. And if you just keep, if you read from chapter 1 to chapter 6, I mean, he, he calls them, matter of fact, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, you know who the author is writing to? Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. He's actually saying, my brothers in Christ, who've received the heavenly calling. He's not writing to dear Jews who haven't got saved yet, Okay. Matter of fact, I think the only reason to believe the second view, that it's just Jews there who aren't saved, uh, it's because you can't take serious the warning and it couldn't possibly be the Christians, so it's got to, you find another way. There's no end to the theories you could come up with of what a verse means if you don't want to accept what it means. Amen. Some of you guys are getting real quiet here. Okay, listen. <clears throat> you could find a way to explain away the meanings of anything if you don't like what you're reading in the Bible. 
And, and I'm seeing this as we're going through apologetics. People want to look at Genesis and see it with millions of years of evolution. Even though the Bible says that on the sixth day, God created, created this. On the seventh day, God rested. And well, it's, it's hypothetical. You could explain away anything in the Bible that you don't like and you don't want to believe. Now, there's a third view. And the third view pro- proclaims that all the apostates were Christians who, because of their spiritual condition, uh, they faced God's judgment as believers, but there are no danger of actually losing their salvation. And that's really a, an obvious way to interpret it. If you don't believe a Christian could ever possibly lose their salvation, then you say, well, it's Christians who are in danger of losing their reward. Okay? And so you will just keep playing with this until you find one that fits you. The final one that you like. So this view says that the only loss is the loss of reward. But what happens when you get to verse 8 in this text where it says, but if the, it, it, speaking about the people fall away, and it says, if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is being burned. Well, I guess you could find a way to say you're just burning away all the dross and burning away. But that doesn't, I have a hard time with that. That doesn't feel right with me as I look at the end. Take the Bible for what it says. Okay, now there's a fourth view. You believe there's four views? There isn't. There's five. The fourth view suggests that the apostates have been full members, and I'm reading this from a a theological dictionary, uh, that they've been full members of the Christian community, and they've experienced the full reality of the Christian faith, but have now turned their backs on Christ and the church. That certainly sounds like what this text is saying. Okay? People who, for all intents and purposes, it looks like they were Christians. Now, I could see there's debate over whether they ever really were Christians or not, because there's false believers. There's people who look like Christians, and I thought they were Christians, and they were never really Christians. I understand that. But I think this fourth view is picturing what an apostate is. Now, Let's look at one more, and it's the fifth view. The fifth view is that rather than having been true believers, these apostates showed that they never really knew Christ in the first place. And, um, okay, I understand. Now, let me just tell you something. If you have any one of these views, when I'm with finished here, and you disagree with my view, I still love you. Okay? And it's okay because I've got dear brothers and sisters who, who I'm close with who disagree of the, the proper interpretation of Hebrews 6. And I don't think it's a hill to die on. I think it's an important text. I think it's important that you settle it and understand what it means. But I think that there's room for Christians of different theological bents to still accept and love one another. And if you disagree with me, come on up afterwards and I'll pray for you. Oh, that's an old funny one. Okay. All right. So... Um, the, the problem with this view that they were never really saved in the first place, I think when we get to words, maybe next week, as we look at the words like renew again, the word again is used so many times. Repent again. Fall away. How do you fall away if you never were there in the first place, right? Yeah, he, 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 um, he moved away. He used to live in Boise, but he moved away. But he never lived in, lived in Boise He never really lived in Boise, but he moved away. You figure that one out. Okay, listen. Whatever way one interprets, and again, I'm going to read this right out of a theological uh, 
explanation that lists all these five for me. Whatever way one interprets this passage, it is clear that the author of Hebrews is, has given a clear warning not to renounce Christ or reject his offer of salvation. Can we all agree with that one? Huh? Okay. So I always tell you it's all about Jesus. I can give no hope for somebody who rejects Jesus. I have all kinds of hope for those who believe in Jesus right now. And only those who believe in Jesus will be saved. And, and, and the, the day to embrace the gift of salvation, as you read the scriptures, is always today, right? It's never yesterday, uh, and, and I did it yesterday, but I don't do it today. Beware of interpreting the Bible to fit your theology. Let the Bible change your theology. Let me just tell you that. That's been my experience. It's funny because long before I uh, knew who Calvin or Arminius was, Arminius, that's the names of our dogs, uh, true. Uh, but long before I ever heard of those theologians, I had discovered these doctrines and had studied them and see what the Bible says. And I wasn't influenced by what well, Calvin says, where Arminius says, where Augustine says. I have, early in life, I came up with my understanding the scriptures by understanding the scriptures, not by understanding how the theologians interpret the scriptures, because theologians can be wrong, okay? And commentators, remember what I told you about commentators? What commentators are, they're just commentators, okay? And I had one theologian friend of mine tell me that experts are former drips under pressure, experts. Anyway, that's a whole nother way. But see, even theologians could be guilty of interpreting Scripture to fit their theology. And I've read a lot of theology books on this. I've read a lot of word studies. And it's amazing. There are people who are Greek word experts, Greek experts, Greek theologians. And, and there's Robertsons, and there's Wiest, and there's Vines, and all this. And, and it, you know what? Even though they, you could look at all the different terms describing the people who've done this in Hebrews 6, they will interpret those Greek words, enlightened, taste of the heavenly gift, partakers of the good word of God. They'll interpret it, give you the Greek meaning, and then they'll spin off in the direction whatever fits their theology. Even the experts do it, guys. So beware of coming to your final conclusion by listening to your favorite theologian, your favorite Bible teacher, or even, even the notes in your study Bible. That's why my Bible doesn't have any notes. <clears throat> when I want to use the notes, they're in my tablet and my laptop and all that, and even on my phone. But I want to read my Bible without anybody else's notes. Because what happens is when you have somebody else's notes in your Bible, some other Dake's mistakes or Ryrie's study, but with all these different, whatever that is in there, you tend to put those notes on the same level of authority as the word itself. It's not. Sometimes it contradicts. Their explanation will contradict what the Bible says. Read your Bible, not just the commentary. Spend, don't, spend more time in the Word than doing any commentary. Okay, now, <clears throat> I told you I'm laying a foundation. <clears throat> but can I tell you, I really believe this all comes down to our presuppositions. Quite often, when theologians all disagree with one another, is because theologians each have their own presupposition and they've each got a case to build. And I'm a Calvinist, I'm an Arminianist, I'm a Universalist, I'm whatever. And they will twist it to fit their presupposition. 
If you believe it's possible for a Christian to turn away from faith in Christ, then you're going to take these verses exactly literal. If you believe that it's impossible for a true Christian ever to fall away or to reject Christ, then you're going to find another way to interpret it. Because I don't believe that. Some of you guys aren't coming back next week. <clears throat> you know what? I'm just so done with worrying about that. God's called me to teach the truth and to teach the truth in love. And I'm committed to do that, guys. Okay? Now, uh, and so this presuppositional problem is why there's so many differing opinions. Because everyone's got their points of what they want the Bible to fit into. And if it doesn't fit into these five points or these three points, or the, this is my theology, my favorite theology, and if, if what this verse doesn't, is saying doesn't fit in, you'll find a different way to interpret it. I think I've said that enough. You get it. But I'm going to teach you the truth, and here's your next fill-in. Okay? Your next fill-in is the challenge. We need to let the scriptures shape our beliefs. Amen. Let me just say it again. We need to let the scriptures shape our beliefs rather than shape the scriptures to support our beliefs. Huh? If a passage of scripture refutes your beliefs, adjust your beliefs. I'm not just saying throw away everything, but sometimes, there's many times, even as I'm teaching through the Bible, since I've been a pastor, there's been times, I always believe this verse meant that, and I get to it, and I'm studying it to teach it on Sunday morning, and I have to adjust my belief. I used to believe this verse meant that, but you know what, as I look at it more carefully, I think I'm changing my, I'm going to adjust my beliefs to fit what the scriptures really say. Let the Bible drive your life. Let the Bible drive your beliefs. Listen, it's funny because even one of my favorite preachers that I quote a lot is Spurgeon. Now, he's kind of a half Calvinist. Actually, some will say he's wholehearted Calvinist. But listen to what he says about this text. We come to this passage ourselves with the intention to read it with the simplicity of a child. And whatever we find therein to, to state it. And if it may not seem to agree with something that we've hitherto held... And we've prepared to cast away, we are prepared to cast away every doctrine of our own rather than one passage of the Scripture. Thank you, Charles Spurgeon. Matter of fact, later, it probably have to be next week at the rate we're going here, Spurgeon said, some, is, some have called me a Calvinist Arminian and others other have called me Arminian Calvinist, but I'm telling you something, I can't remember exactly how it puts it, he wrestles with teaching the Word of God for what it says, not to fit his theology. I, I appreciate that, okay? So here's a rule. The Bible means what it says, says what it means. The clearest sense of interpretation is always the preferred meaning. If the Bible clearly says something, go with that. Don't go, well, it can't really mean what it seems to be meaning, you know? Uh, I'll tell you something. As, I'm, as I've studied Hebrews 6, chapter 4, uh, chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, so many commentaries, and I've read a lot, start out by saying, on the surface, this text seems to say that a Christian can ultimately reject Christ. But, you know, you could also just as easily say, on the surface, it seems like John 3.16 says that if you believe in Jesus, you can have your sins forgiven and be saved. Yeah, on the surface, because that's what it says. Okay? Now, Years ago, I wrote this um, 
explanation of how so many people will twist John 3.16 depending on what their theology is. And I just want to share it with you. Because on the surface, it says what it means and it means what it says, okay? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Have you heard that before? That's what it says. A universalist would read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that everyone will be saved and have everlasting life no matter who they are or what they believe or how they live. That's what a universalist believes. A legalist would say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him and keepeth all the rules perfectly should not perish but have everlasting life. It's about the keeping the rules. John 3.16, the cultist. The cultist would say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believeth in him and belongeth to our one true church and remaineth in good standing with God and the church by keeping all the laws and ordinances of our one true church should not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe. <laughs> That's a cultist. The word faith, positive confession. For God so loved me that he gave everything for me so that I can have everything I want in this life. And if I believe this to be true, I can claim his promise to bless me. Oh, in heaven too. Do you see how whatever you believe, you read into a verse that clearly says one thing and you could read everything you want into it? Our Calvinist friends might read it like this. For God so loved the few that he gave his only begotten son so that a small elect number of people he chose to be saved will not perish but have everlasting life whether they seek it out or not because of course they can't seek it out due to their total depravity so God had to draw them to be saved contrary to the desires of their heart. John 3.16 It all depends on what your presupposition is. And how you'll take a simple truth of Scripture and go, yeah, on the surface it seems to mean this. But in reality, and you expand it and contract it and contort it and twist it. But the biblical truth is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the biblical truth. Okay? Jesus. We hope you enjoyed today's program. You can find all of Pastor Mike's messages and any other information you would like about Calvary Chapel Eagle online at cceagle.org. In iTunes, you can subscribe to the podcast Calvary Chapel Eagle Sunday morning. If you are new to the area and don't already have a home church, we would love for you to come check us out. We meet every Sunday, 10 a.m. at North Star Charter School, 839 North Linder Road in Eagle. That is one block north of Highway 44. You can call or text the church phone at 208-891-2635. Once again, you can get any information you need at cceagle.org. There you will also find a link to join our Facebook page. So until next time, remember, it's all about Jesus. Yeah, the power of His name.